Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. I'm excited to welcome Michael Rosenblatt, Vice President of Clinical Operations at Roche. Great to have you on today, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rahul. Super happy to be here. Great. So, Michael, to kick us off, we'd love to understand you know, the arc of your career, all the stuff that you've done prior to Roche and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, before I get started, let me just say that uh, anything I express in the following conversation um, are my views and not necessarily those of Roche Genentech. I would venture to say, you know, maybe my career is a little atypical than from some of the other folks that maybe you've talked to. My degree is in English language and literature, and my first job out of college was working at a printing company as a project manager. So it was kind of a, a long, varied career, but, you know, I got interested in actually document management and workflow. So again, not like a typical biotech kind of thing, but eventually worked my way into consulting. And for those that are listening to the podcast, you know, there's so much you know, content and information that flows through pharma or a biotech company. Um, and I ended up getting called on quite a bit to come out to pharmas and biotechs and, you know, how do we organize information and how do we do a better job at workflow and making those things happen? And I became, I think expert might be too strong a word, but certainly I spent a lot of time and that really led me to a career in consulting at IBM and their life sciences practice, and ultimately a, a project at Roche Genentech when Roche bought Genentech and shortly thereafter an invitation to join Roche Genentech and then spent the last 11 years between regulatory and clinical operations uh, in late stage development at Roche Genentech. Awesome. Michael, for those of us that may be listening that are perhaps biotech curious, Want to ask two questions. One is, you know, as folks think about starting off their careers in biotech, talk about what it's like working or starting off your career in big pharma like Roche and some of the opportunities that that affords. And then more specifically, would love your perspective on clinical operations as a career path as well. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think two things about big pharma and a career there. There's a lot of opportunity to get exposed to many different things. There's a, I guess, an excitement component or an opportunity, that, like I said, an opportunity to do many things. There's also probably a frustration component that clinical operations at Roche, late stage clinical operations at Roche is roughly 1,500 people. You know, the entire uh, late stage development organization is closer to 5,000. Just the campus in South San Francisco is 13,000 people. So there's definitely a little bit of, okay, there's all this great opportunity, but you have to navigate this enormous organization as you go. And I would say maybe the, the contrast is you maybe have to be a little bit more determined in a large pharma if you really want to kind of try a bunch of different things and migrate around a company. I've never worked in a small biotech, but I can imagine, you know, that it's a little bit easier to get your fingers in a lot of different places where the opportunities exist in a large pharma, but it's just a different kind of navigation. So I think you got to ask yourself, like, what's my willingness as a human, as an individual to create those connections and find those ways around? And there's some great, I mean, I've got colleagues with commercial backgrounds. I've got colleagues with nursing backgrounds. I've got colleagues with IT backgrounds. So people do come from all over the place, um, but you really have to navigate your way around. So I think that's one kind of large pharma maybe versus a smaller company. I would guess that's true in almost any industry, right? From a, a company size. Yeah. You know, ClinOps, I think 
It's such an interesting opportunity to work on such a broad scale. And again, maybe a little of this is, is unique, large pharma, late stage development, you know, where we're running trials in 25 or 30 countries around the world. But I really enjoy kind of that component of understanding the nuance and complexity and what do we need to do in order to kind of make these things happen, right? Uh, regulations differ around the world. The way you, you take a trial to market in countries differs. So there's all this kind of really nice exposure to all these different ways of thinking and cultures. And just, it's so much more, I guess, heterogeneous in my opinion, when I'm thinking about it globally, than if I was just kind of focused in someplace narrow when I was only working, you know, on something in say one country. And I think just the exposure to the different ways people think, because education systems are different in different countries is, is a huge benefit. And I hope that's opened my mind to different ways of thinking. And if that's, those are the kinds of things that interest you, I think, you know, finding your way to a large pharma and then being a part of that kind of an organization really opens up some great opportunities. I'll also say that, you know, it's given me the opportunity again in ops and, and you could have done this other places in the company as well, but you know, I had the opportunity to live overseas for a little while. And again, that's just a great growth opportunity for any individual. Yeah, great. And so, Michael, given all that you've seen across ClinOps and regulatory, if you could provide your perspective on the clinical operations landscape now and, you know, what's changed over the last five to seven years from your vantage point? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I think, you know, the shift right now is maybe more, even more acute than it was, say, five years ago. And a couple of things I think are, are coming together you know, just the overall cost of development means we really need to be thinking differently about the way we do things on the length of time it takes to bring a product to market. We need to think differently and how we do that, right? So, so some of the really recent and acute conversations around diversity and inclusion and how do we run trials differently that way? I mean, those are kind of maybe three things that are, that I think are really, in my opinion, you know, starting to shift how we work and the way we think about things. And We've been going through a large transformation, I mean, at the Roche level and, and certainly within the ClinOps organization on how we can work differently. I think, interestingly, some of that shift is about actually, even though we're a large pharma, working more like a small pharma. So how do we, you know, reduce decision-making timelines, you know, give authority to the person closest to the work, make decisions much quicker, all those kinds of things. So that helps us kind of think differently but how we design trials, how we find the sites that we're going to run our trials out, the conversations that we have between ops and clinical science. And what are those trade-offs between the really awesome science that needs to be done to really understand the biology and make sure we're bringing a safe, efficacious product to market and learning so that we can prove and bring the next one. And then what's the burden on that patient? And, and how do we make sure, you know, there's a human on the other end of that, on the other end of that, and we need to care for and take care of them as well. So I think that shift to me is maybe, I don't know if I could colloquialize that into humanizing clinical trials, that might be a reach. You know, and I don't want to say Roche is the only company doing this. I mean, I think this industry-wide, the, the, the shift is happening. Maybe we're all approaching it in slightly different ways, but I think those are maybe three drivers. Yeah, great. Yeah, Michael, I, I totally agree. I think in terms of, you know, oftentimes just when I was in clinical operations, you forget about the opportunity cost of a delay of a single day really often, right? Because you're just, you're in it. And I think we've we've started to do a better job as a sector and particularly in clinical operations to think more creatively about how can we accelerate a lot of the inefficiencies or break down a lot of the inefficiencies that have existed. I'm curious, as you think about, you know, reflecting on 
last two years and change since we've been in the pandemic. Any perhaps silver linings of the pandemic as it relates to clinical operations or your role that you hope survive long after we're on the other side of the of the pandemic? Oh, I mean, hands down, and I think anybody in ops would tell you this today, the acceleration of a move to decentralized trials and telemedicine and really bringing those things. I mean, I think the adoption of the technology to do those things, the willingness of health authorities to enable us to do some of those things, the willingness of pharma to try some of those things. I mean, that was massively accelerated. So it's as awful as the pandemic was for so many reasons, including all the issues from a healthcare standpoint, those are good outcomes. And now I think what, what needs to happen is the industry needs to figure out and the health authorities and patients, everybody needs to figure out like, what's the right balance? Cause it, you know, there was a lot of kind of hundred percent telehealth, hundred percent remote during the pandemic. And I'm not sure that's the answer either. Not everything is remote or, or so on and so forth, but there's clearly a mix that needs to happen. One of my favorite stories um, and this goes back to the fact that there's a human on the other end of the trial. One of my colleagues who was in the ophthalmology space for a really long time tells a story about a patient and we were taking a decentralized trial to the patient. And, you know, we said, Hey, look, you know, how great it's going to be. You're not going to have to come to the clinic anymore. Um, and this was a, a, an elderly woman patient. And she said, but I like the soup in the cafeteria. And the moral of that is this patient enjoyed like part of their social, they wanted to come to the site. It's a matter of, you know, there was all this excitement. We don't need patients to come anymore and all these other things. I mean, there's all kinds of unbelievably great advantages of that, but these are not one size fits all answers. Great point. You know, one of the things, the ideas that pops into my head is around how now the folks that are starting to participate in clinical trials are digital natives, right? And to your point, right, there are some folks that are young that grew up in the age of, you know, whatever, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, but then there's this dichotomy of uh, folks that still participate in trials that are not digital natives and like to come into the office. And really interesting point around how we need to take different approaches for different people when we have all these folks in clinical trials that are coming from such varied background, whether it be socioeconomic, geographic, et cetera, too. I'm curious, have you seen any particular tech that you're excited by, and maybe it's it's more of the promise of the technology rather than what they're delivering right now, but something that you're really excited about has the potential to transform how R&D or more specifically ClinOps is done. Yeah, you know, I, I think as there's, there's probably a couple of places. I mean, certainly some of these, you know, ability to take the trial to the patient feel like I've seen somewhere recently, and this isn't like tech that you put in your pocket, but you know, mobile endoscopy platforms, right? That's a really interesting idea. Does that actually provide us the ability to, if endoscopy is something that needs to happen as a part of that trial, and we can take that out maybe to somewhere that we wouldn't traditionally be able to go, right? Does that open up an opportunity for patients to participate that maybe didn't participate? We always, um, for some reason, when we talk about it at Roche, we always talk about the patient in rural Nebraska. And I lived in Nebraska at one point in time, so no offense to friends of mine that still live there. But if you do live, say, three or four hours from a clinical site and, you know, going to participate in a trial that's got, you know, weekly screenings, you know, what does that mean for you? If you're going to do an eight hour round trip every week, that makes that trial very difficult for you to participate in. So as those kinds of technologies can come online, right, that could maybe, you know, move some of those diagnostics to a local clinic or bring them, you know, I don't know if people really want a truck rolling up in front of their house that says endoscopy on it, but whatever those things might be, right, some of those things, that's one category. 
The other category that I think is super interesting, and it's not a place that I spend a lot of time. So this is kind of my professional slash layperson view of it is like, what can we do with devices, whether it's watches or phones or whatever, right? For some of these disease areas where like there are things that we can use AI to really understand changes, right? I mean, I've certainly read and seen things about, you know, analyzing coughing patterns and gait patterns and other things that we're doing. I mean, I think there's a, a huge opportunity to potentially revolutionize diagnosis, treatment, you know, ability to think about endpoints in a trial. I mean, if, you know, imagine if some of these things could be recognized endpoints, you know, where you walk around with your phone all day, that can actually be an endpoint in a trial. So, and I don't know how close we are in some of those things, but they're, they're super interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, from that perspective, the intersection of tech and bio right now is is really interesting, particularly as it relates to, you know, things like drug discovery. And I think, you know, perhaps some of the unsexy things that we talk about in clinical operations, but there's so much room for driving significant efficiencies with the use of technology in day-to-day clinops. So thanks for sharing your perspective. To switch gears a little bit, Michael, Talk to us about your role at Roche, the org structure, and and some of the transformation that's now underway at Roche. Yeah, <laughs> happy to. And, and and that's actually one of the, I guess for me, the super exciting things in theoretically late in my career or later in my career, maybe. Um, and but yet um, I feel like I'm a brand new kid on the block in some of the things that we've been doing. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that you know I kind of have a tech and consulting background from doc management and some of those things. And I find myself as the leader of our gastrointestinal disease area from an operational standpoint, so learning a whole new thing. And that is really based on this transformation that we've been going through. Um, And I think I mentioned earlier in the podcast that one of the things that we're trying to do is move decision-making down, shorten some of the chains of the way we think about things, put the person that's as close to the work in charge of that decision. So we've really eliminated a lot of kind of our old hierarchical mechanisms you know, or it used to be a pyramid and I had my boss and there were six of us that reported to her. And then underneath each of us, there were seven other people or, or whatever. We've collapsed a lot of that. And, you know, it's funny, you introduced me as the vice president of clinical operations. And I am indeed one of several vice presidents of clinical operations in, in late stage. Internally, my title is actually um, clinical operations portfolio lead. And the only reason that's not what we use externally is because people would say, what the heck does that mean? You know, so the traditional titles make a little bit more sense on something like a LinkedIn platform. But I am actually one of almost a hundred clinical operations portfolio leads in late stage uh, clinical operations. And that's all about we have kind of divided things up and chunked things out that I really own my disease area. I make decisions on that disease area. I am accountable all the way to the head of development for um, how those things are working. I am liaison with clinical science. There's no flagpole. There's no chain to run those things up anymore. So we've done two things, right? We've really tried to focus. And and, and I don't want to say everybody aligns by disease area. We have tried to chunk that out even a little bit more deeply. We've tried to really create almost like individual businesses that are almost running themselves in that area from, from a disease area standpoint, from a development standpoint. And then the other thing that we've done is, so everything we do is called a community. We've created these, what we call enabling communities. And our enabling communities are thinking about things like, how do we make trials better for patients? How do we delight our investigators? How do we make it easier and better for our internal employees to get their jobs done? How do we think about diverse and inclusive trials? So these are, again, independent communities. They're not just small working groups. These are living 
communities that actually work across all our disease areas to try to think differently about how we're going to do things. So really what we did, we tried to do two things. We tried to flip the pyramid over and say the people that used to be at the bottom of the pyramid are really kind of the closest to the work and therefore they need to make the most decisions. That's one thing we did. And the second piece of it is we really try to put the patient and the investigator at the center of every decision that we're making. Because at the end of the day, those are the people that are most impacted, right? Ultimately, it's the patient. Clearly, there's a huge component of the investigator and the clinician that's working with that patient. And we're really here to serve them. And I do think that's a little bit of a flip. And, and again, you know, I don't want to throw any of my other big pharma colleagues under the bus. I think we all are trying to think about this, but really doing that every day and really saying, are we sure we're putting the best interest of the patient first? Are we not the best interest, but are we sure we're thinking like the patient does or what that looks like? Like, so one example maybe would be if you think about like the science, we're really curious and we want to run lots of tests and we want to gather all kinds of information. We justify that sometimes like we need this data in order to advance the science, in order to bring the medicine to market, in order to be able to do whatever the next thing we want to do is like this data is really important to us. At the other end of that is a patient who maybe has to spend eight hours in the clinic because there's all these different tests that we need to run or, or, or blood draws or other things that we need to do. And then the next thing is, you know, imagine a patient who's just spent eight hours a day. Maybe it is a, a mother and she's got two kids at home. And, you know, she, she had to leave her kids all day, how to figure out how all that's going to work. And then she spent eight hours at a clinic and now she's going to come home and face dinner, cleaning, homework. I mean, any of a number of things, right? Thinking from that perspective, I hope is changing at Roche Genentech. And I certainly am sure in other farmers as well, changing the thinking about how we design and run clinical trials. And, you know, Michael, just from our first meeting many, many years ago, I've always thought that you were one of the more creative thinkers in clinical operations and what it should look like. I'm curious, as you think about a lot of the moving parts that are involved in running a clinical program, and it's a you know complex ecosystem, if you will, that provides support to each clinical program, we're in the midst of a, of a talent crisis across our sector right now, becoming increasingly difficult to find the right talent at the right time. I'm wondering how the support system around running programs has evolved. So think about CRO landscape, if you will, and what opportunities or challenges you still see there that folks should be thinking of tackling. It's funny because I think the talent wars are actually only just beginning to heat up, it feels like. Two things. Clearly, the demand for talent, how we source it, and kind of the, the up and down nature of the pharma industry, right, makes that talent thing can be really difficult. And I think, you know, CROs, uh, the kinds of things that, uh, things that Clora provides and others are, are great ways to enable that. And I think the, the real issue for the industry, I think, is what's the right happy medium? You know, there's certainly a part of us at Roche and Entech, you know, hey, there's a huge need for an external flexible workforce. We need to bring in experts that we don't always have around, and but we only need for a short term. So there's a lot of that need in the organization. And a need to be flexible as you know, trials start and end, and you know, we win in some areas and lose in some areas or wherever those things will be. So we, so we need all of that. I think one of the things, you know, we touched on the transformation that we're doing at, at Roche and and in late stage operations. One of the things that we're trying to change is that in our old model, we would project out, okay, we're going to run this trial. 
and this is exactly how many resources we need. And there was an algorithm that backed all that up. And it, it, you know, you got a number. You need 237.33 resources. I never know where the 0.33 comes from. But what we changed that a little bit to say we need to be dynamic based on what's going on today. Because the algorithm says on average you need 200 and whatever resources. But the reality of it is day to day, week to week, that shifts massively. Right. So how do you actually create a talent market inside of your organization to say, hey, today this trial is having an emergency and we need a couple of people to flow over and help us figure out this problem for the next week or 10 days or 30 days, whatever it is. And it's okay because these other trials or these other things, they're in steady state right now. And it's okay for a few people to flow off. But we used that, like we, that old mentality was no, right? I'm working on this breast cancer trial. And that's the only thing I work on. In the meantime, right? The guys over at ophthalmology are dying going, we are desperate for help, right? And the person working on the breast cancer trial is like, yeah, hey, I'm taking Friday off. And, you know, maybe Monday I'll come in a half day. So, you know, how do we balance that better? So I think that's, I don't know if that's totally unique to what Roche and Antech is doing, but that's the other, other way. It doesn't, stop the need for CROs and some of the other things. What it does interestingly start to flip around is then how do you work with CROs in a model like that, right? It's a different way of working when we start thinking about shifting resources kind of on a weekly or daily or monthly demand basis versus, you no, know, everybody just sits here for five years working on that trial. It's early days. So we'll see how this continues to go for us. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for the great segue into winning sometimes and losing sometimes. I, I'll buy you a beer next time. You know, risk is inherent in everything that we do in drug development, right? And invariably, more programs will fail than succeed. I'm curious from your ClinOps perspective, and as you think about, you know, all of your colleagues that work on particular programs, if you found anything that works really well for you when communicating the inherent risk involved in running programs, and then when there are failures, how you have dealt with keeping the team inspired and yourself personally motivated? Wow, such great questions, such difficult answers. I guess you need to go in knowing. And maybe that's the hardest part is because you're so hopeful. What you know, you get a new product, you know, it's come out of, you know, in my case, it's come out of the early stage. It's got great signals. You know, we feel like it's going to be great. And you're just, yeah, right. We're going to win. This is going to be perfect. And then, you know, obviously, you, you know, you, you get that disappointment. And sometimes it's really, you know, you can go, you know, sometimes you can go a couple of years before you yeah. realize that the, the disappointment is going to be out there. I think, you know, one thing, you know, from a more just pure business standpoint is you just got to be willing to stop, right? You know, whatever you've got built in to, to do, you know, whether they're interim assessments or other things that you're doing, you know, the biggest mistake I think we make is that sunk cost fallacy or it's like, oh, you know, but if we just did this and we made it bigger, or we keep going, it's going to get better. And it's like, if the data is telling you stop, just stop. That's one thing. You know, I do think, again, you know, kind of back to this new talent model that we're, we're working on in, in Russian Antech. The other thing in our organization that we're trying to say to people is there's plenty of other opportunity, right? So it's okay if you're working in one disease area and things don't pan out, because to your point, there are so many shots on goal. I mean, it's the nature of development, of research and development, right? There's always the next thing coming. Can we help people realize, at least in the clinical operations space, you're a clinical operations professional. Now, you certainly may have some really great disease area knowledge in one disease area or another, but that doesn't mean that your general ability to run a clinical trial can't apply in 
any disease area. There's always a few things you're going to have to learn. Everything's a little bit different. But I think that's another way to kind of keep people motivated and is to say, you know, hey, this doesn't pan out. It's okay because we're going to shift and go over here. This is coming down the pipeline. It's funny, I had a conversation with a colleague yesterday and we were talking about, I think as with everybody, you know, everybody's really busy. There's a th- uh, tons of things going on and, you know, we need help here and we need help there. Yet we know that, you know, hey, there's XYZ readouts coming. And if one of those is negative, right, that shifts the entire paradigm. So I think, again, maybe the nature of late stage trials, because they run, you know, in many cases run for, for many years, it feels very stable, but the reality of it is it's incredibly dynamic, but that's a mindset shift. Cause I think, again, you know, two, three, five years ago, it was, Hey, we're stuck. This is the silo. This is all we do. And it was reflected in the way we were structured. And, you know, I, I think about, my, you know, my early days in clinical operations, I was a part of leadership team. We had the oncology team. We had the uh, the non-oncology team. I worked on some of the infrastructure stuff in the background. The oncology team was the oncology team. And when they needed resources, they hired from the market or they brought on a CRO or they called somebody like a Cora and said, hey, we need resources. Nobody ever looked over the I2O team and said, hey, what are you guys like? Do you have extra resources? Again, we're trying to change all that. So I don't know if that 100% answers your question, but it's the way we're th- trying to think about it a little bit differently. Yeah. Yeah. The multiple shots on goal is a really good point. And having the mindset of being able to turn things on and off as needed. And you're thinking about that from the onset. So it's a great point, Michael. All right. To end, given you know all of your experience from project manager at a printing store to IBM to Roche now, I'd love if you could reflect for a minute, think about you know what's one piece of advice that you would love to provide your younger self, knowing all that you now know? Maybe I have three pieces of advice, but I'll keep them short. Definitely stay curious. Have a goal, but don't necessarily have a plan. Um, So know where you want to go, but be willing to take the detours. As a matter of fact, that's one thing I wish I think I had done earlier in my career is, for lack of a better way, take that lateral move to get the really cool experience. It will pay off in the long run, even though it feels like you're going sideways in the short run. And then, as I said, the first two, I forgot the third, but I think those are (laughs) Yeah, those those are great ones. Yeah, totally agree with those and certainly resonate with me. Wonderful, Michael. Well, thank you so much for for joining us today and for covering the breadth of topics that we did. And it was great to have you on. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for the invitation. It was wonderful to be here. Really enjoyed the conversation and uh, looking forward to cashing in on that beer. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Thanks, Michael. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.